I think that's well for uh, where we are going this morning, also just where we are at in the Advent season. Uh, we began last week um, with this reflection on hope and the reality that hope is often born, actually is born out of this sense that things are not the way that it's supposed to be, right? It's not, we don't hope uh, in Advent because everything is great and perfect and working out well. We, we begin in this place of grief. And so that sense of, uh, I'm not quite home yet, I think kind of gets us uh, into where we were last Sunday and where we are headed this morning. Now, before we get into Ruth chapter 2 and week 2 of Advent, um, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things, uh, some reminders uh, about things that are going on. So, uh, Roly, um, who just led the band here uh, a moment ago, we we're down to the final weeks uh, with him and his family with us, all right? So, Today and then um, two more Sundays after this, uh, we get to be with them, and then we will send them off into their next adventure in Arizona. So uh, a couple of things to, to uh, sort of keep in mind as we move through the next couple weeks. Uh, one is this. There's going to be a little book, uh, like a moleskin journal, out on the connections table, which you heard about from our wonderful announcement team just a moment ago. In that book, I, I want to challenge every single one of us to take some time uh, in the next couple of weeks and write a note of encouragement, affirmation, something that you are grateful for. And, and I just want that book to be filled with good words uh, that we can hand off to them uh, when they head out here in a couple of weeks. So that'll be floating around over the next couple Sundays. Uh, please take a, a advantage of that and write something in there, even if you're doing some other thing to say goodbye to them. Make sure that you write in that. Next Sunday is Ugly Sweater Sunday. This is um, fun. It's also uh, one of Rolly's love languages. And so honestly, like one of the best ways that you could bless Rolly and, and say thank you for his service and leadership to our church is to wear an ugly sweater next week. I am not making this up. This is the truth, okay? So keep that in mind. And then also next Sunday is the moment where we will have uh, their family come up on stage, and we will have this commissioning moment, praying over them. Um, and then the next Sunday is actually their last week. And after the gathering on the 22nd, we will head over to the downtown center, have a, a reception, and an, a, a, just kind of one last moment to say goodbye uh, to them before they go. All right, so those are some things that are coming up with that. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into our conversation here uh, in just a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time today, for... Uh, this season that we are in, and it is a season that often is bittersweet. As we uh, just wrestle through the, dif the difficulties of life, the challenges of life, as we think about things that we've left behind, as we think about uh, people who we have lost, there is uh, a deep sense in our bones, God, that things here are not the way that they are supposed to be. And yet, at the same time, we uh, step into these Advent ideas, these themes of hope and joy and peace and love because we know that Jesus has come. And, and we celebrate that during this season, but we also remember that it's not just a seasonal thing. This is the, the deep truth of our universe. You have come to us in the person of Jesus to erase the distance between us that we could be in right relationship together. And so we are so grateful for this good news. God, wherever we might be this morning, help us to, to be fully present here now. Would you hold 
uh, whatever things uh, we bring in with us that might be a distraction so that we can be here and we can hear from you and be encouraged and challenged uh, by you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, one of the things that I love about Advent is just, again, how many people are uh, a part of what's going on. So thank you to uh, the uh, Thursday night group for doing our reading this morning. They'll also be a part of lighting the candle here at the end of our gathering. The announcements team, the, the band or the ensemble. What do you guys call yourself? The orchestra? Sure. Um, whatever. It's just cool to see so many people involved in making these gatherings happen. So thanks to everyone who's been doing that. Now, today again, we're, we're in week two of Advent. We're in chapter two of Ruth. If you have your Bible, make sure that you're there. We're going to be coming at the story today a little bit differently than, than we normally do. And I'm really excited about this. But before we get to that, I want to set us up for this by uh, just really quickly answering the question, why are we spending time in the book of Ruth? It's Advent, it's Christmas, this is about Jesus and, and Christmas trees and all this kind of stuff. Why are we in this obscure Old Testament story uh, about this person named Ruth and, and these other characters, Boaz and Naomi? So I gave last week three reasons why we are spending time here. One of them is that we will discover and are discovering that there are all kinds of connections between the Ruth story and the Jesus story. In fact, Ruth is one of Jesus' ancestors, and we'll see how that all fits together in the next couple of weeks. But a lot of connections between Ruth and Jesus. And then there are a couple of very timely reasons for us to uh, spend time in this story this year, 2019, here in Davis, California. One of those reasons is this. We, we are um, stepping into a story of obscure characters who are just faithfully living their lives well below the radar of, you know, the big events of the day. And I think in our fame-crazed moment, and our attention-craved moment here in America, social media, all these different things, <clears throat> it is a good gift to spend time with these obscure characters who are so faithful as they operate under the radar. And then the second thing, or I guess the third thing really, is that this story has so much to teach us about God's heart for the foreigner, for the sojourner, for the, the other is the language that we've been using, for those who are different than us. And this issue of difference comes up all the time in the story of Ruth, and it's a big, uh, I think, a big invitation for us as a community to learn uh, from the story and from God's heart for those who are different than us. So to do that, to enter into that story a little bit more today, I've invited one of my friends. Her name is Kajal. Our stories intersected when we were in Oakland. And Kajal has spent the last uh, several years, she'll say more about this in just a minute, but many years now serving uh, refugee and immigrant populations in the Bay Area and also uh, in the United Kingdom. So let's welcome Kajal to the stage. <laughs> I'll help get you set up here. So could y'all tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in serving in this particular area. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to be here and uh, be with Stephen's family. Um, so my name is Kajal, as uh, Steve mentioned. I am um, originally from Iran, and I will 
share a little bit more about that, um, an immigrant myself. Um, but I have been working with refugees um, and immigrant communities in Oakland and in the Bay Area since 2012. Um, and it's been a great journey. Um, I also have done that in the United Kingdom while I was studying for my graduate program. Um, and I will share about that a little bit more. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. All right. Um, so um, I really wanted to come here, and when Steve mentioned that I, if, if asked me if I can join you guys tonight, um, today, um, um, I was asked to share a little bit about um, refugee communities here in the Bay Area, um, just to give you some numbers. Um, and I thought about giving the numbers first, and then I thought about it a little bit more, and I was like, you know what? You hear it in the news all the time. It just goes over everybody's head. It's too many. So let me just start by a story, and then I can give you guys the number to give you guys a bigger picture, a little bit of a bigger picture um, of what's happening. Um, so um, when I was in United Kingdom in the past two years, um, I had the privilege of working with the asylum-seeking community there in United Kingdom. And I'm sure you have seen it in the news, um, a flood of refugees going in into Europe and Europe struggling um, with um, serving asylum seekers. In one of the programs that I was working, um, I worked with a lot of youth um, who um, were unaccompanied and they had crossed borders and had come to the UK by themselves. Um, and part of my job description was to you know, teach them about um, having self-confidence -con and leadership and be able to advocate for themselves in the UK um, asylum system. Um, one of the days that I was doing that, uh, one of my students, Mohammed, who is uh, 16 years old, and uh, he was there um, coming every day, very dedicated to the cause because he really wanted to advocate for himself. Um, I was talking about um, self-confidence. So I was teaching along what self-confidence is, what that means, and then he just kind of raised his hand and looked at me and was like, Miss, um, can I say something? I said, sure, go ahead. And he said, you know, I am 17 years old and I have crossed five borders and five different countries. Um, I'm pretty sure I have self-confidence. <laughs> and um, it took me by surprise because I was in front of the entire classroom and I just took a deep breath and I thought about it and I was like, you know what, touche my friend. You have done that and you do have self-confidence. And I told him, do you want to come up here and talk more? If 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 that makes you feel comfortable. And he was like, no, 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 it's just, it was just a reminder that I, I have self-confidence. And I was like, great. Um, so I think having that picture in your mind, um, I wanna remind all of us that there are about 70 million people, 70.8 70 to be exact, um, people um, displaced around the world. Um, there are 3.5 million asylum seekers um, and 25.9 million um, refugees. These are nitty-gritty immigration terms, um, and I can talk about that forever, but I'm not going to bore you with that. Um, what that means is um, that actually some of those um, refugee, Im refugees in particular make their way to countries like the United States, and it's only actually 1% that would be able to make it out to the United States, Canada, and countries in Europe. Um, with a refugee status. Um, in 2015, um, our numbers uh, of those who entered the United States of refugee population were about 80,000. Um, the, under the current administration, last year we went to 22,000 um, only, and uh, this coming year we're expecting to go only um, around 13,000 to 15,000, which is kind of a very scary uh, decrease. Um, 
you guys live in Davis and near Sacramento. Um, Sacramento is actually um, a the first county in, the, in California, at least for now, that serves refugees. Um, and in 2018, there were roughly about 5,000 who entered um, in your county. Um, so I told the story of Muhammad because I think the stories kind of represent better what the numbers are rather than the numbers representing the stories. Um, and I hope that his story kind of set the stage for what we're gonna continue talking about um, with Steve. Yeah, so Kajal and I, we're going to kind of go back and forth here as we make our way through this this morning. But I wanted us to start there with that kind of in the back of our minds as we get into Ruth chapter 2. Because if you were here last Sunday, or again, just as a reminder, we talked about how Naomi and Ruth uh, in particular are people on the move. Naomi's family originally, going back to Ruth chapter 1, were refugees. They fled from Israel to this place called Moab in search of food during a time of famine. And so I want us to think about some of these stats and some of the stories that Kajal will tell us through the lens of, of the text today. So again, just to give us a little bit of review and context, and then we'll get into chapter two here for a moment. Um, Naomi's family, her husband is this man named Elimelech. They flee to Moab searching for food. And then verse five tells us, and kind of the key phrase in the first couple verses of Ruth is that Naomi was left without. Her husband Elimelech dies. Her two sons then marry Moabite women, one of them named Orpah and the other Ruth. This is where Ruth comes into the story. And then her two sons die. And so Naomi's in this extremely vulnerable moment of being in a foreign country left without her safety net. And then verse 6 tells us that at just that moment, Naomi discovers that there's food back home in this little town called Bethlehem. And so she begins the journey home. At first, both daughter-in-laws are going to go with her. But Naomi says, you guys don't have to come with me. You're not from there. You know, stay here where you are uh, with, you know, familiar people and customs, and you're young enough to start your life over again. You don't have to come with me. And so Orpah says, okay. And she stays with her people. But Ruth goes with Naomi. And these incredible words of faithfulness, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And so the two of them go back to Bethlehem together. Now, we spent some time last Sunday, again, with each of these widows thinking through their responses to their tragic situations. We saw how Orpah clings to the familiar. We looked at how Ruth takes this risk by clinging to Naomi. And then we see Naomi express her deep disappointment with God about how things have gone in her life. And this, uh, once again, connects us to the, the first theme in Advent, this theme of hope. And it's actually in Naomi's expression of her disappointment that we see an, inter, uh, an intersection with the Advent story. Again, this sense, things here are not the way that they should be. And so we cling to hope because we believe that it is going to be different, that there is a way out of this. The first invitation of Advent, ironically, is, is to grieve and, and to discover, again, hope in the midst of things, the circumstances that are not the way we would want them to be. And so that's where we ended the story last week. Naomi is disappointed. She's grieving her loss. There's also this hint that hope is around the corner, though, because we're told that it's just about to be harvest time in Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 2. I'm just going to very quickly walk through the three big themes that we see in this part of the story. The first of those themes is this. God's providence, his hand is all over this story. 
Last week we learned that God is not necessarily a main character in the ways that, that maybe he is in some other uh, Old Testament books, but he's very much at work in these circumstances. It just so happens that Naomi has a relative named Boaz living in this area. It, it just happens that Boaz is a man of good standing, a man of character. As it turns out, Ruth works in Boaz's fields. Of all the fields she could have gone to, she ends up working for Boaz. And then just as Ruth starts working in this field, Boaz happens to return from Bethlehem where he crosses paths with Ruth. How many times in your own story have you had this experience? Just then, just at that moment, as it turned out, it just so happened. And you look back and you kind of see all these different ways that God has been working to bring you to that particular place. The truth is God is always at work and, and, and there are moments though where we, we don't notice it, right? We can't see it happening. But that doesn't mean he's not up to something, he's not doing something. And so this powerful truth for us is that God is at work, especially in those moments when it seems like nothing is happening. And we can kind of look at the beginning of chapter 2 and see all these things, see all these uh, providential moments. But in that moment, Ruth and Naomi don't have any idea how this is going to turn out. They have no idea if they're going to be okay. They're, they're desperate. They're, they're hoping. They're longing for something. They're, they're searching. They're just trying to catch a break. And this is where we see the second big theme. First theme is God's providence. Second theme, though, is Ruth's initiative. All right, God is very much at work, but Ruth also doesn't just sit around hoping that something, you know, falls into her lap. This is the truth that hope is active. And so Ruth says to Naomi, hey, let me go work. Let me go glean in someone's field. Let me go see if I can get some food for us. Ruth takes the initiative to provide for herself and for Naomi. Now, this is a very countercultural move, and it's also very risky. Ruth is going out into some random people's field in a country she knows nothing about, and in doing so, puts herself in a very vulnerable position. Which brings us to the final theme that we see here, which is the interplay between identity and power. Back in verse 2 of chapter 2, Ruth is referred to as the Moabitess, or some translations might say Ruth the Moabite. Eight different times throughout the story of Ruth, she is referred to this way, Ruth the Moabite. Now, this is a, a, an ancient text. This is a 3,000-year-old story. They had different values then than we do today. You know, we don't like to label people like this these days. But this is a very, very important part of the story. And the reality is the story of Ruth is very progressive in the ways that it portrays immigrants and women. But this identity, Ruth the Moabite, is still very important to the story. Okay? The author does not keep referring to Ruth in this way to demean or diminish her. Rather, this is a technique to remind both the original audience and also us Ruth was not an Israelite. And for the Israelites, there was a very clear sense of who was in and who was out. And so Ruth is out, right? She is an outsider. 
And yet she becomes the hero of this story. It's Ruth who's faithful, humble, strong, proactive, loving, hardworking, and sacrificial. And so what the author is doing here is subtly and not so subtly confronting prejudice. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the hero of the story. Now the other side of this is this character called Boaz. Boaz who has all of the power dynamics of that society on his side. He is male, he owns land, and he is an Israelite. But look at how he interacts with with Ruth. He notices Ruth, he affirms Ruth, he protects Ruth. And notice that all of this is very surprising to Ruth. Look at what she says. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? Boaz says, your reputation precedes you. I've heard some good things about you. But also, Boaz is a good man. He doesn't use his power over her in any way. Verse 12, he prays this blessing over Ruth, and, and, and that, this is kind of a tease. Keep this in mind. to come back to play in chapter 3. But he prays this blessing over Ruth. Ruth responds in gratitude. Over and over again, we see Boaz has all of the power and yet doesn't use any of it against Ruth, never leverages uh, his power over her. In fact, if anything, he uses his power and influence to serve and to help Ruth and, by extension, to serve and to help Naomi. This is hesed in action. This word, this Hebrew word is the central idea, the big theme of the book of Ruth. It's used many times throughout, uh, throughout the text. It's translated in our English Bibles as kindness. Hesed, anytime you go through and read the word kindness, this Hebrew word should be in your mind. Now our word, our English word kindness is, you know, sort of like, oh, just be a nice person, like, you know. Kind of a flimsy word, but in the Hebrew, it's so much stronger than that. Hesed is faithful, enduring love. This is where we get the title for our Advent series from, is from this idea. It's sacrificial, life-giving love in action. And we see it at play in these two main characters, Ruth sacrificing for Naomi. And Boaz sacrificing and loving Ruth. Not using his power and influence against her, but to serve her instead. Now, along these lines, I, I wanted Kajal to say a little bit about this posture towards the other and, and the example that we see from Boaz. You want to say a few things about that? Um, I started working with refugees when I was in UC Berkeley. I went ahead and chose the most Berkeley major you can ever imagine called Peace and Conflict Studies. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I did that. Um, and um, when I started doing, studied that and then ultimately started working with refugees in 2012, I came from a very, you know, mindset, my core beliefs were the progressive, liberal core beliefs that I want to be a part of something bigger and I want to help people and I want to, you know, make things better and save things. And so that was the mentality that, you know, brought me to start working at the International Rescue Committee, IRC, where we um, helped resettle refugees in Oakland and the Bay Area. 
Um, I was so dedicated um, to fixing things that I spend one day two hours trying to fix a printer and my boss laughed at me and he was like, only peace and conflict studies people do that. And I was like, I know. Um, so that was sort of the mentality that I came in. Um, but over time, and as I started working with refugees and asylum seekers, um, something very strange started happening. Um, I dealt with people that did not share the same beliefs as me, and I kind of cognitively knew that when I started working with refugees, but then I had to then really sit through it. Um, there were people who I would help every single day, and then it would just get nowhere because the Bay Area was expensive, and um, I, it seemed that it was, it was not nonstop. I, I kept helping, we kept helping, and then something else would come up. I had to have... I had to have hard conversations. I had to have, um, um, you know, give bad news um, to people. And it got to a point where it just felt like um, I'm crumbling uh, because I couldn't do the things that I promised to do and fix things and situations. And at the same time, the refugees and the asylum seekers before me were standing strong and kept going. Um, at some point, uh, I started kind of questioning what this is all about. Parallel to that, I was struggling around my faith um, as, as an Iranian and American, and I was like, what is happening? I thought I'm supposed to be here doing things, and God, what, what, what is happening? I don't understand this. Um, and the more time passed by, and the more I saw the refugees and asylum seekers before me who came back, even if they went through a hard time with a, you know, a plate of food for the caseworkers or, the first three months they had a really hard time and they yelled at you and slammed the door because something was not working and then six months later they saw you at the street and they invite you over to their house. I kept being like, wait a minute, <laughs> they're fine and they keep going and they keep hoping and I'm the one who is struggling. And I started to flip the scenario in my head where I started to think maybe it is me who needs them more than anything. Um, this sort of idea um, continued on um, for years, um, and the more time passed by, um, the more I realized that actually the stranger, the foreigner, um, the refugee before me, um, was the one who is sort of like the Ruth in our story. Um, they take initiative, they take risks, they often um, believe and they actually often hope and that's what it is that keeps them going and that's the reason why they stand before us here finally in the United States. Um, and I think uh, part of that um, sort of made me think differently and start to kind of question the ways I see kindness, I see serving, I see generosity. Um, nowadays, um, and I go back to the story of Muhammad later on, um, but Nowadays, I look at serving in a, in a little bit of a different light. Um, oftentimes, serving happens um, in an equal field, um, it feels like, where um, the person before you has something to give, and then you also have something in return to give. Um, so I'm going to transition to you, and I'm going to talk more a little bit about how that played out in my story um, with Muhammad. Good cliffhanger. I like that. Um, <clears throat> Kind of leading from what Kajal just said into the last thought on Ruth chapter 2, the other thing we need to see in this story is the interplay between the idea of gleaning and generosity. At the beginning of the scene, Ruth 
takes this great initiative to go out and look for uh, food in someone else's field. Now, this is not just a random idea that she has. Like, oh, here's, here's an idea. I'll go pick some, some fruit off someone else's tree. No, this was supposed to be a normal practice in Israelite society. God had laid this out for them uh, in the law back in Leviticus chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And then this stamp of approval, I am the Lord your God. This is so uh, anti-counter to how we think, right, in, in, in 21st century America global economy mindset, which is all about, like, you're supposed to monetize everything, right, maximize efficiency and profits, but in God's kingdom, from creation onward, maximizing profit is never the ultimate goal. Now, the design of this is fairly simple. If you're privileged enough to own and farm land, grow what you can grow, harvest the majority of it, but leave some of it for those who are in need. Now, the law is interesting here. If you read through Leviticus and some of these Old Testament passages, there's some very us weirdly specific things, right? But here it's just kind of like, you know, leave the edges, leave, leave the extra. There's not a whole lot of specific instructions, but the idea is very clear. Share what you have. Don't hoard it all for yourself. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus picking up on these ideas. Jesus says that our generosity is a way of serving him. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And he goes on to say that the way that we think about our fields metaphorically, the way that we think about our stuff, our treasure, reveals a lot about our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This will be a different journey for each one of us because we're in you know, different stages of life. What does it mean to leave the edges of your field is open to a lot of interpretation. But this is something that we need to sit with and wrestle with. Boaz, by the way, goes way above and beyond what the law required. As you move through the end of chapter 2, you see him just uh, being very extravagant in what he uh, offers to Ruth and to Naomi. Now, I want to uh, just tell a couple of stories here because this idea of gleaning and generosity is something that we've been talking about here at Discovery for the last several months, and it's starting to come into play in our community in a lot of really fun and interesting ways. Over the past couple of weeks, all of our Discovery groups have adopted a family through the STAKE uh, program, Short-Term Emergency Aid Committee, uh, identified 400 families in our uh, county, I believe, um, this holiday season, and we collected a bunch of stuff for families, um, and then some of our people even went yesterday. It was the big distribution day, and it was really cool to kind of hear some of the stories about um, interacting with people and the families that were receiving that generosity. Most of our groups have also um, had a chance to serve in the last two months at either Davis Community Meals or Fourth and Hope in Woodlands, and I think, again, there's a picture of that up on the screen. Uh, both of these are, are, are fairly uh, easy opportunities to prepare a meal for people who are hungry. And, and sometimes it can feel like, oh, maybe this is, you know, is this really helping? Or, uh, you know, what are we doing here? But a really simple step towards 
serving those in our community who are in need. And um, out of those two opportunities, Fourth and Hope in particular looks to be a place that we will continue to partner as we move into the new year. Third thing, we, uh, over the summer, uh, received a letter from a man named John who's uh, in prison here in California, has been in prison since, I I believe, 1989. And he wrote letters to a bunch of churches, and uh, we got one of them, and we started this sort of letter-writing campaign with him uh, over the summer. I think about 65 of you wrote a letter to him, and and many of you have continued to correspond with him over the last a couple of months. It's been really fun. Almost every week we get another letter from him as he is slowly making his way uh, through that list and writing everybody back. He recently, though, reached out and and gave us a list of things um, that uh, are sort of allowed for him to receive during this time of the year. And so we looked at that list, added it all up. I think it's $150 to provide this stuff for him. So we could very easily just write a check and send it off and, and take care of that. But uh, invitation for you this morning, right here, right now, uh, is to think about making a donation towards that. Um, if you have a little bit extra in your field, let's uh, continue our partnership with our friend John uh, in prison. And so um, this is kind of an ad lib, but ushers, if you could be ready for that at the end of our time today, they'll just be there with those bags. You can drop some money in there, and that will go towards that gift for John. Each of these stories... Each of these things that has been going on here in our community is a small picture of this idea of hesed, of kindness, faithful, sacrificial love. Small steps, but still good steps for us as a community towards letting go of some of our stuff, letting go of some of our power and our privilege to bless those in our community who are in need. And so I've asked Kajal to kind of end her time with us today by just challenging us, giving, giving us another push in that direction. So you want to say a couple words about that? Um, as I mentioned, um, serving refugees over the years um, sort of helped me, and I'm going to wor- use these words um, um, in a way that maybe makes sense um, in the context. Um, it helped me deconstruct um, and also reconstruct my beliefs around serving and about you know, doing a service and um, kindness in particular for refugees and immigrants. In some ways, um, I think I started to realize that maybe serving is almost kind of like a finding the right balance between knowing when to stand up for someone, uh, when to you know, um, be able to help someone, and then when to kind of take a step back and let things go um, and let God um, sort of take control. Um, It's sort of like the Ruth story where all the characters in Ruth's story are sort of um, not passive about kindness and generosity. They take risks, they move forward, they do things, but at the same time, they know when to stand back and they are constantly reminded that God is in control. Um, So bringing you back to the story of Muhammad, which I shared uh, earlier, I have gone through this deconstruction, reconstruction a lot in the past couple of years, but the story of Muhammad happened actually last year um, when I was living in the UK and I was serving this community outside of London. Um, And when he asked me that question and he made that comment of having enough self-confidence to cross five borders and five countries, I thought about myself. Um, I came over to the United States from Iran when I was around his age. Um, I came alone. Um, I did not cross five borders. Um, I don't think my mom and dad would allow me to do that. I don't know. Um, But I was privileged enough to have a status and I could 
I could come in and I had a family here who helped me out. And for a very long time, um, when I lived in the US, I was all, almost all under this impression that, um, well, I'm an immigrant and, you know, uh, privilege. I don't know. I worked really hard for all the things that, um, um, you know, I have. Um, so, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, I didn't necessarily feel like I was privileged. Um, the comment that Muhammad made um, sort of brought me back to that time, and I recognized that in some ways now I was in. And in, in though I lived an immigrant life, um, looking back in my relationship with the refugees I've served, I am privileged, and I have power, and I do have to let go of some of that, um, which meant that when I was teaching self-confidence um, to a group of refugees who have crossed that many borders, maybe I should have asked a question first about what they know about self-confidence. Um, so I think to kind of go back to the challenge, um, you guys will be serving, we are all serving, but I think if we can kind of look at generosity and kindness um, and God's kindness through that lens where it happens in an equal field, um, where we're all kind of equals in the love we receive and the, in the love that we can give, um, I would probably challenge all of us um, to serve with that lens, to be reminded that oftentimes the foreigner and the stranger um, or the refugee or the immigrant, and you can put whatever name you want in that, in that you know, blank space, um, they often hold a mirror and they remind us um, about us more um, than what you can ever imagine. So then when you go out there and serve the world, um, to kind of ask that question of not what is, it, what is it that I can do for you? Um, what is it that I can learn from this interaction? Um, and that would be, I think, my challenge um, for all of us as we go and serve the world. Thank you, Kajal. You guys say thank you. So good. Um, I'm gonna close and get us ready for communion here with one final thought. And by the way, she'll, she'll be hanging around after the gathering if you want to um, say hi or ask her any questions. Final thought is this. Advent theme of week one is hope. Our theme this week is joy. There is great joy in finding our way home. And going back to that song that the band played earlier, I just I love that line, to know that I've arrived in a world where I belong. And I think for so many of us, if we're being honest, we have this sense deep, deep in our bones that we are not home yet, that we're not where we belong. And as we get ready for communion, this, this the highlight of our gathering, this symbolic meal that we celebrate it every week, can be, it can become a routine, but it's also this reminder of where our home is, where we really belong, in right relationship with our Heavenly Father. So as we get ready for this, this, this time today, I want us to come back to this idea of what it means to find home, what it means to be in right relationship with, with God. This is love we read in Scripture, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's great joy in discovering home and there's great joy in sharing the good news of home with other people. 
And so there's a lot uh, that we talked about today, a lot to reflect on. I would encourage you during this time to reflect on some of the things that Kajal said and what is our posture towards generosity? What does your next step look like in this generosity journey? But then also to remember, again, as we come to the table today, we come remembering where our true home is. And that at this table, we're reminded who our father is, what family we belong to, and that it's good to be home. Let's pray. Father, we um, begin our response today uh, once again in gratitude for who you are and what you've done, especially through Jesus. The, the truth that we celebrate this season, that you took the initiative, the risk, to come to earth as a baby and to live among us, walk among us, to be with us, and ultimately to to give your life for us, to do what we could never do on our own, and, and in doing so, to call us home, to this reunion, back where we belong. God, we're so grateful for this good news. W would you grow our hearts, our capacity for sharing this good news with others? Would you teach us what it means to leave the edges of our field? to not hold on to everything for ourselves, but to be open-handed with it, to share it, to allow what you've blessed us with to be a blessing to other people, whether that's our stories, whether that's our time, whether that's our money, whether that's our stuff, God, would we see it all as part of your kingdom and as things that can be used to share the good news of Jesus with, with others. So, Father, help us to reflect on all this now as we uh, enter into communion, into prayer, into responding to you in worship and song, God. Would we be uh, deeply, deeply reminded of where we find our home? We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.